This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of non-union from the basic science section on orthobullets.com. A non-union is an arrest in the fracture repair process. Specifically, it's progressive evidence of non-healing of a fracture of a bone. A delayed union is generally defined as a failure to reach bony union by six months post-injury. This also includes fractures that are taking longer than expected to heal, for example, distal radius fractures. Large segmental defects should be considered functional non-unions. As far as the pathophysiology of non-unions, it's multifactorial. Most commonly, inadequate fracture stabilization and poor blood supply lead to non-union. Other factors include infection, where eradication of the infection needs to occur, along with achieving fracture union. Location is another factor, specifically scaphoid, distal tibia, base of the fifth metatarsal, are all at higher risk for non-union because the blood supply in these areas are tenuous. And finally, fracture pattern is another factor, specifically segmental fractures and those with butterfly fragments are at increased risk of non-union because of the compromise of the blood supply to the intercalary segment. As far as classification, there are different types of non-union, septic non-union, pseudoarthrosis, hypertrophic non-union, atrophic non-union, and oligotrophic non-union. A septic non-union is caused by an infection. And keep in mind that a CRP test is the most accurate predictor of infection. This has been a tested point on previous exams, so I'll say it again. CRP is the most accurate predictor of infection. Hypertrophic non-union is caused by inadequate stability with adequate blood supply and biology. Again, a hypertrophic non-union is caused by inadequate stability with adequate blood supply and biology. It's also characterized by abundant callus formation without bridging bone, and keep in mind that hypertrophic non-unions typically heal once mechanical stability is improved. This has been a tested point on previous exams, so I'll say it again. Hypertrophic non-unions typically heal once the mechanical stability is improved. An atrophic non-union is caused by inadequate immobilization and inadequate blood supply. And finally, an oligotrophic non-union is produced by inadequate reduction with fracture fragment displacement. As far as the presentation of non-union, it's important to discern injury mechanisms, non-operative interventions, baseline metabolic, nutritional, or immunologic statuses, and use of NSAIDs and or nicotine-containing products. It's also important to assess pain levels with axial loading of the involved extremity. On physical exam, it's important to complete a thorough neurovascular exam, including the status of the soft tissue envelope. Make sure to assess the mobility of the non-union and assess the extremity for the presence of deformity. As far as imaging, plain radiographs are the cornerstone for evaluation of fracture healing, and four views should be included. A full-length weight-bearing film should also be obtained if a limb-length discrepancy is present. As far as a CT scan, if the status of the union is in question, a CT scan should be obtained. However, keep in mind that hardware artifact may limit the utility of a CT scan. As far as the treatment of non-unions, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes fracture brace immobilization and bone stimulators. However, keep in mind that contraindications to bone stimulators include synovial pseudoarthroses, non-unions that move, and greater than one centimeter between fracture ends. Operative options are different based on the type of non-union. As far as an infected non-union, 
these are often associated with a pseudoarthrosis, and the chance of fracture healing is low if infection isn't eradicated. Therefore, a staged approach is often important. As far as modalities in the setting of an infected nonunion, you need to remove all the infected slash devitalized soft tissue, and you may need to use antibiotic beads and vac dressings to manage the wound. With significant bone loss, bone transport may be an option. And finally, muscle flaps can be critical in wound management with soft tissue loss. As far as a pseudoarthrosis, as we mentioned, this may be found in association with an infection. Remember that the joint capsule may be encountered with operative exposure. As far as modalities in the setting of a pseudoarthrosis, this will involve removal of atrophic, non-viable bone ends, it will involve internal fixation with mechanical stability, and maintenance of a viable soft tissue envelope. Hypertrophic nonunions often have biologically viable bone ends. Remember that in the setting of a hypertrophic nonunion, there's an issue with fixation, not the biology. As far as the modalities in the setting of a hypertrophic nonunion, this will involve internal fixation with application of appropriate mechanical stability. Oligotrophic nonunions often have biologically viable bone ends. However, they may require biological stimulation. And the modalities in the setting of an oligotrophic nonunion is internal fixation. Finally, atrophic nonunions often have disvascular bone ends. They are mobile, and as far as the modalities in the setting of an atrophic nonunion, you need to ensure biologically viable bony ends are opposed. Again, in the setting of an atrophic nonunion, you need to ensure that biologically viable bone ends are opposed. In addition, fixation needs to be mechanically stable in the setting of an atrophic nonunion, and bone grafting may be required, specifically autologous iliac crest, which is osteoinductive and is the gold standard. Bone morphogenic proteins may be used, and possibly also osteoconductive agents, for example, crushed cancellous chips and demineralized bone matrix. Finally, in the setting of an atrophic nonunion, it's important to establish a healthy soft tissue flap slash envelope. Now let's quickly talk about bone stimulators in a bit more detail. There are four main delivery modes of electrical stimulation. Direct current, capacitively coupled electrical fields, which is alternating current or AC, pulsed electromagnetic fields, and combined magnetic fields. With direct current, there is decreased osteoclast activity and an increase in osteoblast activity by reducing oxygen concentration and increasing local tissue pH. In the setting of capacitively coupled electrical fields or alternating current, this affects the synthesis of cyclic AMP, collagen, and calcification of cartilage. With pulsed electromagnetic fields, this causes calcification of fibrocartilage. Keep in mind that bone stimulators work through induction coupling, which stimulates bone growth through the following direct effects. Increasing expression of BMP7, increasing expression of BMP2, increasing expression of TGF-beta-1, and increasing expression of osteoblast proliferation. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 32-year-old man underwent open reduction and internal fixation for an open radial shaft fracture six months ago. He is now experiencing fevers and chills at night and pain and swelling over the surgical site. A current radiograph depicts a non-union of a radial shaft fracture after ORIF. 
what is the most accurate laboratory test for assessing his most likely diagnosis? And the choices are 1, interleukin 1, 2, white blood cell count with differential, 3, C-reactive protein, 4, interleukin 6, and 5, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or ESR. The correct answer to this question is 3, C-reactive protein. So this patient is presenting with signs of a septic nonunion after open reduction and internal fixation of a radial shaft fracture. Of the choices listed, C-reactive protein is the best predictor of infection in the setting of nonunion. To quickly review, nonunions after fracture fixation may occur from infection. The most sensitive and readily available laboratory marker to detect infection is the CRP. CRP is an acute phase reactant that significantly rises within six hours after tissue damage or onset of clinical infection. CRP then peaks two to three days later and returns to normal levels five to 21 days after the inciting event if it's treated, for example, with antibiotics for cellulitis. In septic nonunions, the chance of fracture healing is low if the infection is not properly treated and chronic infection can lead to substantially elevated CRP values. Wang et al. evaluated the effectiveness of laboratory tests in the diagnosis of infected nonunion. They reported that the sensitivity and specificity of CRP for detection of infected nonunions are both higher than those of IL-6. They concluded that the diagnostic utility of CRP was superior to IL-6, which is contrary to similar studies comparing these markers in prosthetic joint infection patients. Stuckin et al. performed a study to investigate the utility of a standardized protocol to rule out infection in high-risk patients and to evaluate the efficacy of each component of the protocol. They reported that the ESR and the CRP levels were both independently accurate predictors of infection. They concluded that their protocol can help surgeons to risk stratify patients prior to the surgical treatment of a nonunion, allowing them to counsel patients more appropriately. Moving on to the next question. While planning for revision of a failed open reduction internal fixation, you are planning to increase mechanical stability across the fracture site. In addition to addressing stability, which of the following fracture scenarios is least likely to require additional bone biology in order to achieve healing? And the choices are 1. Abundant callus formation without bony bridging at the fracture site. 2. Small callus formation without bony bridging at the fracture site. 3. No callus formation with sclerotic bone edges at the fracture site. 4. A segmental bone defect that was filled with an antibiotic spacer six weeks prior. And 5. Fracture site contamination with elevated inflammatory markers. The correct answer to this question is 1. Abundant callus formation without bony bridging at the fracture site. So hypertrophic nonunions are described as having abundant callus formation without bony bridging at the fracture site and rarely require an increase in bone biology to achieve fracture healing. To quickly review, a nonunion is defined as a fracture that has not healed and has no further capacity to heal without further intervention. Nonunions are typically classified as hypertrophic, oligotrophic, and atrophic. Hypertrophic nonunions show clear evidence of the ability to heal without bridging of the fracture gaps. Atrophic nonunions show no evidence of biologic healing and no bridging of the fracture gaps. Oligotrophic nonunions tend to fall somewhere in between hypertrophic and atrophic nonunions with some evidence of biologic activity, however incomplete healing. 
Understanding these characteristics allows for proper identification of the nonunion and selection of appropriate intervention with regard to increasing bone biology and fracture stability to achieve healing. Bishop et al. review the diagnosis and assessment of delayed bone healing through a systematic approach to help surgeons determine appropriate interventions to achieve healing. They state biologic capacity, fracture stability, deformity, infection, and host status should all be considered closely prior to establishing a plan of management for a non-union. Bobulker et al. reviewed 113 patients diagnosed and treated for non-unions, including 61 hypertrophic and 52 atrophic non-unions. They found all patients healed with improved function and pain following treatment of their non-unions. They found residual problems related to joint stiffness, limb length discrepancy, and angular deformity. Moving on to the next question. Induction coupling stimulates bone growth through all of the following direct effects except, and the choices are one, increased proliferation of osteoblasts, two, decreased osteoclast differentiation, three, increased release of TGF-beta-1, four, increased expression of BMP-2, and five, increased expression of BMP-7. The correct answer to this question is 2, decreased osteoclast differentiation. So induction coupling stimulates bone growth by increasing expression of BMP7, BMP2, TGF-beta-1, and by increasing osteoblast proliferation. Induction coupling has not been shown to have the effect of decreasing osteoclast differentiation. In basic science studies, electrical stimulation, for example, induction coupling, has been shown to promote bone healing via release of growth factors that induce osteoblast differentiation slash proliferation. Electrical currents can be placed around bone in various ways, creating a current to stimulate growth factor release and subsequent osteoblast proliferation. Aaron et al. summarized in a systematic review the effects of various types of electrical stimulation on bone and bone healing. Regardless of type, for example, inductive coupling, capacitive coupling, and direct current, they report electricity and or electromagnetic fields promote gene expression of growth factors that promote an osteogenic environment. Moving on to the next question. A 45-year-old man develops a non-union after undergoing external fixation of an open femoral shaft fracture. The procedure is revised with an open reduction and internal fixation, all intraoperative cultures are negative, and specimens from the fracture site are sent for biopsy. Histological analysis will most likely reveal, and the choices are 1, positive gram stain and polymorphonuclear cells that are too numerous to count, 2, bland-appearing cartilage callus, 3, Haversion remodeling, and four, lamellar bone. The correct answer to this question is two, bland appearing cartilage callus. So this patient has a non union and intraoperative cultures that are negative. The external fixation technique would be expected to heal the fracture through an endochondral mechanism. Bland appearing cartilage callus fits with the non union and with the expectation for cartilage present in the tissues taken from the failed endochondral healing site. Positive gram stains and polymorphonuclear cells that are too numerous to count suggest an active infection. Haversion remodeling and lamellar bone would be expected to be seen in fully healed and remodeling bone. Moving on to the next question. An otherwise healthy 50-year-old man who is a smoker 
undergoes a posterior spine fusion with instrumentation for spondylolisthesis. What can the patient do to minimize his risk for pseudoarthrosis? And the choices are 1. Increase calcium and vitamin D intake. 2. Avoid all non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. 3. Maintain smoking cessation. And 4. Engage in early physical therapy to strengthen the trunk musculature. The correct answer to this question is 3. Maintain smoking cessation. So smoking is the biggest risk factor for non-union and should be strictly avoided. NSAIDs interfere with bone healing, but not as strongly as smoking. Early mobilization would potentially stress the construct, inducing movement that leads to non-union. Without history of calcium and vitamin D deficiency, increasing intake would not decrease the risk of non-union. And moving on to the final question. A 34-year-old man underwent open reduction and internal fixation of a closed both bone forearm fracture 11 months ago. Radiographs reveal a 3-millimeter gap and loose screws. What is the best treatment option? And the choices are 1. Vascularized fibular graft. 2. Locked intramedullary rotting. 3. Tricortical iliac crest grafting and compression plating. 4. Cancellous autograft and plating. And 5. BMP7. The correct answer to this question is 4. Cancellous autograft and plating. So in an atrophic non-union with a good soft tissue envelope, adequate plating with cancellous bone graft can be used to span defects of up to 6 centimeters. Cortical graft from the fibula or iliac crest is not necessary. BMP7 is a bone graft substitute and should not be used alone in this patient because the hardware is loose. That's all for this review about non-union. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.